Hey guys, welcome to the Drum History Podcast. Um, Before we start today, I wanted to take a quick second and just thank everyone for listening and following me on Instagram and social media and just creating such a cool community that um, I'm honestly extremely proud just to be able to talk to you guys and get feedback of what you're liking, what you don't like, and tweaking it and kind of making it something that everyone really enjoys um, to hear every other week on Tuesdays when it comes out. Um, And while I'm here and have your attention, I wanted to give a big shout out to Samantha Price, who is helping me out as my producer and doing the booking for the show. So for the last month or so, she has been taking care of uh, lining up all the guests and doing everything like that. She is um, the manager here at Gwyn Sound and handles everything on my day-to-day schedule for things to do for work. So it just makes sense. So um, everyone give Sam a big welcome and... uh, Yeah, without further ado, let's hop right into the history of Yamaha with Jim Haler. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great, Bart. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for joining us. Um, I should say Jim's been with Yamaha for 16 years and is in the the drum department on the sales side of things. We met at the Chicago Drum Show. We were booth mates. We were side by side there, and I got to mess around with the the EAD-10. Yeah, that's great. It's a, it's a great new product for us, and we're having a blast with it. It is. It's a cool, it's amazing how you can just have that one little module there and get so many sounds out of it. But yeah, that's modern. So why don't we jump into the, the history here of Yamaha? And like I said, Yamaha makes so many products. Um, I was telling you before, I've owned two Yamaha motorcycles. You said you've owned three. I mean, the breadth of the products is uh, is very impressive. So this will be really cool. I'll let you take it away, and uh, why don't you start at the very beginning of Yamaha? Okay, that sounds great. Well, way back in 1887, the founder of the company, uh, Torakusu Yamaha, was repairing pump organs for the missionaries that were bringing Christianity to the Far East. And from repairing the pump organs that they were bringing over, he came up with a design for a better pump organ. So that was the very first thing that Yamaha ever built. So we began as a musical instrument company, and the motorcycles and everything else in the world of Yamaha came after that. Wow. So you notice uh, all Yamaha products have a tuning fork on them. Yes. Tuning fork being a tool used for for tuning acoustic instruments. Well, the first version of the Yamaha corporate logo was a phoenix bird with a tuning fork in its beak. And, um, you know, you can go online. There's been several permutations of the logo, you know, throughout the years. And we actually have a branding committee with very strict rules on the use of the Yamaha logo. It has to be a specific way where the tuning forks and the Yamaha have to be in a certain position and a certain scale. And they, they police all that. So they, they're pretty strict guardians of the logo. Sure. And you'll notice the different legs of the company, like uh, Yamaha Music and Yamaha Motors, the logo is just a tad different. When you look at the Yamaha Motors logo, the M on the Yamaha, you know, it goes all the way down to the bottom of the M, whereas on musical division, it's held up a little bit. Hmm. So just there's little subtle differences in the logos that we use throughout the company. Cool. So, yeah, so, you know, of course, you know, throughout the years, we've expanded uh, quite famous for pianos and guitars. It's my understanding John Lennon owned a Yamaha acoustic guitar, you know, back in the day. Yamaha has been an important part of musical history on all sides of, you know, when it comes to symphony work and popular music and what have you. Yamaha has been heavily involved. 
And even today, when you look at the educational market, Yamaha probably is more involved in music education than really any other company in the industry. When you look at the support at uh, the elementary school, middle school, high schools, if you ever go to a Bands of America World Finals in Indianapolis, you'll see lots and lots of Yamaha, where Yamaha is the main sponsor of the event. You look at drum corps, colleges, universities, you see Yamaha everywhere. Yeah, so, yeah absolutely. Um, it's cool because you're building the brand awareness from a really young age, so people grow up seeing Yamaha and knowing the quality because it doesn't break if after you play it for a year, and it's not, for lack of a better term, a piece of crap that's going to be... It's not built to break. It's built to last. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I, I joke with people because you know one of the things that I do at Yamaha here quite often is when dealers call in and, and somebody comes in and they've got a 20 or 30 year old bass drum pedal or some piece of hardware. And rather than trying to get a new one, they want to get parts to fix that old one. <laughs> yeah. So when you think about it, I mean, you know, we've, how often do keyboard players, how do you look at a parts for 30 year old synthesizer? Yeah. It, that stuff changes when technology changes, you're always upgrading, but you get a drum set, I mean, it, it can last forever. It so. should last forever, yeah, which a lot of them, uh, a lot of them are still out there. But um, all right, so pulling it back here. So 1887, it was founded, mm-hmm. I'm going to probably say it wrong, but Torakusa Yamaha making mm-hmm. the pump organ. Then, right. yeah, what happened after that? We had Yamaha Motors, you know, I believe was in the late 50s. I'm not going to claim that as a, as a stone hard fact, but late 50s, early 60s, Yamaha Motors began. And um, then we're just going to circle around back because we're really here kind of talking about drums. Absolutely. We'll yeah. kind of go through the history of Yamaha drums. Sure. We started making drums in 1967 at our world headquarters in Hamamatsu. And the, the D20 was like the first kit we launched back in the day. And you'll see some of those. Like I've seen them at the Chicago Vintage Show. Uh, we've got a uh, we've got a couple of those kits floating around the company that we will show sometimes at trade shows. But the interesting thing is, you going back when um, the people that are really Yamaha fanatics are they're familiar with the way we make our shells and um, the staggered diagonal seam slash air seal system that we're famous for. Yamaha actually created that. Uh, manufacturing technique back in 1967 when we started first making drums. Hmm. And then, you know, you move forward a little bit, you know, 1972, and Al Foster was the first artist to sign on as a Yamaha drum artist. The hideaway boom stand, where when the boom arm drops down into the vertical tube of a cymbal stand, um, everybody makes one now, but we actually invented that and launched it back in 1975. Really? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, pause for a sec. Okay, back up. As as a guy who I've owned some Yamaha drums, but I don't know that history that you just said. What is the technique and the the technology that was on the first kit? Can you explain that a little more? Sure. Um, it's a it's a Japanese woodworking technique called kachikome, and if you look at a lot of drum shells, you look where the wood joins and, and joins together, you'll see a straight vertical butt joint. Or um, there's another company out there that uses what's called a scarf joint, where the end of the where the plies are all glued together, and it's sort of tapered off at the end, and then wraps over itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, kind of like when you look at like a lot of the old like the well, like you would do a solid shell drum, where 
where they taper it off and then they roll it into each other. Well, the kachikomi technique is where the ends of the master plies are cut at a diagonal. And then when that, when that wood is put into the mold, you know, you run it through the glue machine and then it goes into the mold and you overlap that diagonal on, onto itself. And then you take a block and put it against the edge of the wood and you strike it down with a mallet. Well, when that wood slides down and the joint locks in and touches all the way down the whole length of the joint, the wood actually makes a little bit of different sound. Interesting. So the people that are making our, our shells know that sound of when they've driven that, that wood down far enough and the joint locks. And then what we call the staggered diagonal seam is that seam in the wood is placed every 120 degrees hmm. so that the concept behind that is that when you take a flat piece of wood and you bend it into a, a circle or into a tube, it wants to be flat, so that creates tension in the shell. Gotcha. By staggering that seam every 120 degrees, the tension in the shell is evenly spaced all the way around the shell, so there's nothing that conflicts with with the shell, nothing to pull itself out of round, that kind of that kind of thing. So once all the plies are put into the mold, then we drop an airbag in the middle of it, and that's the air seal system. Because a lot of manufacturers use a mechanical clamping system, so they'll drop a mechanical device into the middle of the mold, and these shoes will push out and clamp the wood against the outer walls of the mold. And then they heat the, the shell at a high temperature so that the glue will boil and settle in, and glue will ideally be everywhere around that shell. Well, by taking and using an airbag instead, we put the exact same pressure 360 degrees around so the glue is evenly spread. It's the same thickness. There's no voids in between the shell in the plies where the wood isn't, isn't glued, and it just creates a stronger drum shell. So there's stories when I've taken, you know, customer service emails and, and calls and stuff from people like after hurricanes. I've had guys email in and say that their drums were completely submerged underwater, and then once the water subsided, they just dried their drums up, cleaned them up, and their drums were in perfect shape. Wow. Okay, that's so cool. there were some years ago, yeah, you know, and there were some years ago when the Cumberland River flooded in Nashville and flooded out a bunch of storage units where a bunch of the local, all the session guys had their drums stored, and there were guys that lost a lot of drums that came apart. And uh, our Yamaha guys, they, you know, they cut the bottom head out, drained the water out, cleaned their <laughs> drums up, and we didn't have anybody lose any drums. Wow. So That's awesome. That, that woodworking technique is pretty interesting. And if you go, like, um, you know, we've taken dealers over, and I've been over a couple of times to go to Japan to go to Kyoto, which was, uh, was originally the, the capital city. There are ancient Buddhist temples there in Kyoto made of wood and bamboo that are over a thousand years old where they don't even use any nails to join the wood. Just the way the wood is cut and joined, it 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 stays together. So that Japanese culture, obviously, just they're very inventive. And I feel like all of the technology from the thousands of years, all of that technology was put into everything they do, including building drums in an inventive new way. And I think that still stands true today, where things are done efficiently and to withstand the test of time and, and floods and all that stuff. So that's awesome. Exactly. Well, you know, Japanese culture... Is, it's it's interesting. It was actually when uh, when I first uh, joined the company, I was here maybe three months when uh, 
you might be uh, you might remember uh, Takashi Hagiwara. Uh, everyone knows, knows him as Hagi. He's basically the founder of Yamaha Drums. He's when Yamaha started to get big into the drum business and expand beyond just the Japanese domestic market. Uh, Hagi was the one that was responsible for us, uh, you know, signing the agreement with uh, Sakai Rhythm in 1974 to start making our drums. And so Hagi was pretty much responsible for a lot of the the drum innovations that we've had throughout the uh, throughout the decades. Okay. Hagi took me over there about three months after I started working for Yamaha to immerse me in Japanese culture. You know, I knew the drum stuff very well, but I wasn't as familiar with Japanese culture. So I spent an entire week in Japan just soaking up Japanese culture and, and learning traditions and things like that. And it was it was an amazing life experience. I, just, I fell in love with Japan the first time I went over there. And it's yeah, just sure. the people... There's a level of respect for each other and for the earth. That's why you see, you know, Yamaha is a very, very earth-friendly company. Okay. We do a, we do a lot of things that are more expensive. We could find cheaper ways of doing things, but that's making a compromise that the company is not willing to make. Hmm. So a lot of integrity. Um, definitely, definitely. That's you know, I said I, you know, everybody that knows me that you know that that's hung around with me any any period of time knows how proud I am of the fact that I work for Yamaha and proud of the company in and of itself just because of the company's philosophies. Yeah, well, that's a that's the sign of a good company um, is when people are actually passionate about it, and and I could tell when I met you that it's like this is it's it's a good company. Um, so, backing up here, I want to go forward with the drums, late '60s, early '70s. Okay. But I want to have in in my mind something that I need clarification on is the rise of the stencil drums and the MIJ, which stands for Made in Japan for people listening. Um, mm-hmm. What's going on with that? Because the way I, I understand that from, I think, episode three or four, one of the early episodes was talking about how they're just these companies that would, like Thomas started out that way with Star and all that stuff about just mass producing these drums to copy Slingerland and Ludwig. So how is this happening with Yamaha? How, do you, how does Yamaha fit into that, uh, into that part of history? Well, you know, if you like, when you look at like our, our 60s, the kits that we made, 67 up into, you know, the late 60s and very early 70s, you know, they have that kind of sort of American drum kind of look to them. Use, uh, sure. We had a lot of what, if you look at like there's the, the brown willow and the blue willow and some of those other finishes were very similar to some of the oyster finishes that you'll see on like American drums of that, that era. Yeah. Um, so there was a certain amount of, I wouldn't say imitation so much as I, th- I think they sort of, you know, the feeling I get was that they were sort of kind of, I don't know, it was kind of a style yeah. that they were just kind of fitting into. Absolutely. That's um, totally. But, but, but you look and yeah, and you know, the early drums, you know, have a rail mount on them mm-hmm. and some of the other things that that was kind of the way drums were mounted, you know, back in the day. But, then it wasn't really long after really that though. I mean, it was 10 years after we started making drums that we came up with the Tom ball mount system, which was, you know, of course, Rogers with the Swivomatic was pretty much the, the beginning, you know, the ones that started with the, the ball and socket. Yeah. And then Yamaha took that and improved on the system by making that phenolic ball that we're known for. 
And you go all the way back into the early 70s, you know, once we came out with that Tom Ball mount with the hex rod in it, we've used the same Tom mounting system on our drums ever since. Cool. Yeah. And on every drum set that we make. Hmm. So you can look at pretty much everything except for there was a um, there was a series back in like the 80s, the the Power Road series that had kind of the the pipe into the shell kind of tom arm yeah um that's this popular on budget kits but other than that every drum set we make and have made since like the early 70s uses that hex rod phenolic ball mounting system gotcha to clarify here for myself so then like yamaha wasn't in that world of the stencil drums where they were making a bunch of drums and then putting other logos on them and then pr- producing them or or I should say no no them out. okay there there are rumors out there and I've heard people say like for instance that Yamaha made drums for Rogers at a certain point in time and everyone that I've ever spoken to with the company just says that that's that's kind of an old wives tale that's not something that we ever did gotcha. so we have never really been what we call an OEM company for other drum companies okay Technically, you know, of course, when we signed on, when Sakai Rhythm started making our drums in 1974, they're an OEM company because they weren't owned by Yamaha. Sakai Rhythm was a independently owned company that was making like marching drums, like low-end marching drums for the Japanese domestic market. But when we went to go expand and, and get, you know, into the drum business full on, Rather than building a new factory, what we did is we signed a contract with Sakai to make drums exclusively for Yamaha, and then we outfitted Sakai with all the molds and all the machinery to do the staggered seam, the air seal system, the gluing machines, everything that was in the Sakai factory with Yamaha machinery. And then we taught Sakai how to build our drums the Yamaha way, and okay. then that's the way the relationship went until um, it was... I'm thinking back now when we split off from Sakai was well, what, seven, eight years ago when uh, Sakai went off on their own and Mm. when we moved our uh, manufacturing of our most of our professional level series drums to our factory in China. Gotcha. That clears up a big history question on on my end of what companies fall into that category. And it sounds like Yamaha doesn't. They were just a drum manufacturer, obviously building super high quality uh, equipment out of Japan. So That's true. Yeah. perfect. Uh, I believe we're into like the seventies, right? Where we last left off. Right. Yeah. So carry on. Mm-hmm. So you get into the seventies, um, 1976, we came out with what we called system drums and system hardware. And uh, which is kind of an interesting thing that sets us apart as well in the industry is if you look at Yamaha hardware, you take a 700 series cymbal stand, 800 series, 900 series, you look at our snare drum stands, our tom arms, tom holders, all of that stuff, we use the same 7 eighths diameter tubing on everything so that you can mix and match parts. You can take a cymbal stand, take the middle section out, drop a tom holder in there, yeah, turn yeah. it into a double tom stand, drop those top two sections into an empty hole in your tom holder, and you can mix and match that stuff. And that's from everything from stage custom all the way up to our PHX series. This is all that same stuff. That's awesome. So, um, so that system hardware that we launched back in 76 
it's something that we still do today. And then uh, 77, we came out with the YD9000, and the YD9000 is the kit that eventually uh, became recording custom. Which are famous just in, in the history of drums. That's kind of a uh, very sought-after piece of gear. Yamaha has always been, you know, Maple has always kind of been like the choice tone wood for drums for American companies and a lot of companies for as long as we've been making drums. Yamaha started making drums with birch before we started making drums with maple. We used uh, what was called a Hokkaido birch from northern Japan. had just this very interesting tonal characteristics to it. And so when Recording Custom came about, getting into the whole studio drummer thing, uh, uh, a fairly famous studio drummer by the name of Steve Gadd came on board. <laughs> yeah, heard of him. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, I think, you know, he's playing on, I think, a couple of songs back <laughs> yeah, in the day. Yeah. And uh, so Steve Gadd came on board, and he was actually the artist that helped develop the original recording custom. Hmm. And Steve, being a studio guy, those drums were targeted towards being very microphone-friendly, yeah. easy to get into the studio, set them up, get drum tones really quickly. Because, you know, back in those days, there was actually guys that made a living just doing studio work, and they would just go from session to session to session to session. He had to be able to, you know, get drum sounds quickly, nail the song, move on to the next one. That was just the way those guys made their living. Yeah. And the faster you could get drum sounds, the faster you could get the cut and move on to the next gig and get your next paycheck. So uh, recording custom took off because with the birch shell and the tonal characteristics, well, the strong mid-range, strong low-end, not a lot of high-end frequencies that were really complex that you had to deal with, and then that high-tension lug that helped control the shell, you could take those drums into the studio and get sounds really quickly. Hmm. And so everybody started playing recording custom. That's how we kind of became still known as the most recorded drum set in history. Because yeah. when you look back through the 70s and the 80s and early 90s, when all that studio work was going on, the bulk of the guys that were doing a lot of that work were Yamaha guys. Interesting. I didn't know that. I, I mean, I've, I've, always, I've always seen the guys playing a bunch of Yamahas, but I didn't realize that it was actually kind of like you think of like a acrylite or a superphonic as being these are the snares that everyone used it's good to know that uh yeah the yamaha recording customs were were that for the drum set well you look i mean you look at the guys that were doing so much of the studio work at the time you know i mean between steve gadd and jr robinson yeah i mean that was absolutely that was a lot of it right there you yeah. know and then you go in down in nashville and we got a guy like paul lime that plays on thousands of like country records and played with Elvis. So those, you know, those guys that were using recording custom were were doing the records and the TV and radio jingles and recording custom would just sort of owned that, you know. Now at that point, is Yamaha in the 70s a household name for drummers? Does everyone know about it around the world as being a drum company? In the 70s I wouldn't think so. Okay. Um my my personal experience, I saw my first Yamaha drum kit in 1979. Okay. I was stationed with the United States Navy Band in San Francisco. Had been riding Yamaha motorcycles for a while. Yeah. I was, I, at that time, I was on my second Yamaha motorcycle and went into an old music store in Oakland and there was this kit that said Yamaha on it. And I'm like, Yamaha? This is kind of interesting. And 
I knew that they did musical instruments, but I wasn't that familiar, you know, with the Yamaha drums at the time. Hmm. But then that's right about the time Steve Gadd started blowing up. So all that just kind of sort of happened at the same time. But I remember seeing that Yamaha kit and thinking to myself, you know, the inside of these drums is finished nicer than the outside of anything I think I've seen to this point. Hmm. And I just thought to myself that, wow, that's, this is pretty amazing. I, yeah. You know, I have to keep, I have to keep an eye on these guys. And you, you could see, I mean, it was, it was sanded and finished and it was just like a beautiful piece of furniture and the lacquer finish on the outside where by then Yamaha had already started doing piano finishes on the outsides of the drums and it, they just looked amazing. And, yeah. And uh, I was blown away. It's really iconic. And then it, I'm a motorcycle guy, so thinking about the Yamaha, like the RD350, which is a very iconic mm-hmm. motorcycle, which is right in that mid-70s time period, they really are, across the board, iconic and really helped shape the American culture. Yeah. I mean, you go back, uh, I believe it was 1978 when Kenny Roberts was the was the first American to win the, uh, the 500cc uh, world championship in... Uh, in motorcycle road racing before they sort of call it before it became moto gp you know when they rode those those 500 cc you know two-stroke uh bikes kenny roberts is you know just a country boy from i think he was from modesto california was a dirt track racer and uh started racing the 500 grand prix bikes and first year he went to europe won the world championship that's awesome and, you know and it's funny because my, my association with Yamaha motorcycles and Yamaha drums kind of all started about the same time. I got my first motorcycle in 1978, and then a year later, stepped up to a, to a bigger bike. And at that point in time, I was really heavy into road racing. I, you know, living up in Northern California, I had two really good motorcycle tracks that I could go to and see guys race between Sears Point and Laguna Seca. So I was kind of wrapped up in Yamaha motorcycles and Yamaha racing and Yamaha drums sort of all at the same time. Wow. Man, that's brand loyalty right there. So as much (laughs) as I love motorcycles, bringing it back to drums here. So mid-70s, you had the YD9000, which became the recording Mm -hmm. customs, right? And then, then people like Steve Gadd brought them into the forefront of music and recording by using them on everything and trusting them. And I think that's something that you right. can you can attribute to this is you can trust the sound and you can trust the quality um, of that Japanese ingenuity and technology and all that stuff. So as touring, you know, musicians where you know, you're not schlepping your gear along, you could play a recording custom kit in L.A. and then do a fly in gig to Yugoslavia and get a backline recording custom. And it's going to be just like the one you played in L.A. because that that going back to that staggered diagonal seam air seal system creates such a consistent shell that what brought a lot of guys on board with Yamaha is the drums sound great, the hardware is functional, extremely durable, and the drums are so consistent that as I travel around the world and go places where I can't bring my drums, I know that if I get a Yamaha kit from a backline company, it's going to work for me. Hmm. Yeah. So. That's great. Yeah, there's where a lot of that loyalty comes from. Yeah. But then you go back into, like, 1986, we made our first electronic drum kit. So 
a lot of people don't realize that Yamaha got into the electronic thing very early on because, you know, we were making world-class synthesizers. You look at the Yamaha DX7, I mean, it's as iconic as you get in the synthesizer world. Absolutely. We have one uh, we have one here at the studio right where I work and it's uh, it's awesome with the little cartridges that you put in and everything and really iconic sounds. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's amazing, you know, and you look at the early Yamaha Electronic, it's it was a lot of kind of the same way where you had your little little cards and stuff that you dropped in uh, before electronics got to the point they are now. Um, you get back to 1988 with the Super Rack system. You know, that's another thing that that we were, you know, in on very early on. You know, you look, you look at Wayne's World, you know, you see the yes. big recording custom kit on the Super Rack system. I mean, that's that's iconic. Yeah. Now, know? pause there. So, as a big Wayne's World fan and growing up, like, making my VCR explode by uh, rewinding that scene, <laughs> any cool yeah. stories yeah. or any, anything you know about that situation with being in the movie? I don't, you know, that was way before my time with sure, Yamaha, yeah. so I wasn't really involved, but it's my understanding that that kit belonged to, I, I could be wrong, but it was my understanding that that kit belonged to Steve Anzavino, who was doing artist relations at the time. Really? I think that was his kit, yeah, cool. and it was provided for the movie. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, because there's Yamaha drums all over that movie. Like, I know the other band, uh, like Cassandra's band or whatever, uh, <laughs> Crucial Taunt, he's playing Yamaha drums. Uh-huh. Um, so, cool. Yeah, little inside scoop there. Yeah, I think it was, I think uh, it's funny. that Who knows, that might have even been some of the some of the earlier, you know, product placement when you, when you just start looking about, you know, now you look, watch movies and stuff like that, and you see all kinds of little product placement things and yeah when a guy's eating a certain candy bar or drinking a certain soda they make sure they turn the little label <laughs> to the camera that kind of stuff and you can yeah you can kind of spot it exactly well it but, worked uh, again because like like you said growing up yeah. playing um in the school band you see yamaha you love it growing up i see yamaha mm-hmm. dana carvey i see garth playing it and i go oh my god and honestly i think that's why i like yamaha and that's why i like zildjian because it's like there they are. There's this iconic movie, and they're being featured. So, so it worked exactly. Late eighties, you know, the Super Rack. Then we did, did the, the the Rock Tour Custom, which was um, like a mixed wood shell. You know, it was a birch and mahogany shell. And you know, we we talk about something. When we talk about it at Yamaha. A lot of we talk about uh, vertical integration, where we'll create a feature for one of our higher end drums. And then it eventually morphs its way down into our mid-level and entry-level instruments. So we don't save all the good stuff and just keep it for the higher-end kit. Yeah, so you nice. look at that, you go back to the Rock Tour Custom, or the outer, the outer ply on that was that phenolic resin outer ply. Uh, we just launched the kit at NAMM in January, the Live Custom Hybrid Oak, and the center ply of that is that same phenolic resin. Really? So the way things morph their way down, you look at uh, the Yes mounting system mm-hmm. that came out on the original, you know, we made our first maple kit in 1991 with the Maple Custom, and then in 93, we developed that Yes mounting system, which is an acronym for Yamaha Enhanced Sustain System. That's the same mounting system you find on our $650 stage custom birch kit. Hmm. Some of those things, they, they work their way down. And, and Yamaha does this with, with all of our other instruments as well. We, you know, we do it in our woodwinds and brass instruments and guitars. And that's yeah. sort of a Yamaha philosophy is, is using your higher-end product 
to develop those those cool new features, but we want to try and morph those down so that as many people can take advantage of that technology as possible. That's nice. Not like holding it above the person to say, you can't use this unless you pay $4,000 for a drum set, putting that technology in everything exactly. to, to make it equal. That's a good philosophy. Exactly. Which, but, you know, and, and the flip side of it, now you're also challenged it that way. So when you want to make a drum set you're going to sell for $4,000, there's still got to be some really cool stuff about it that makes you want to spend a four grand for a drum set. So, you yeah. know, yeah. There's, the, there's that challenge. But at the same time we came out with, with uh, the Yes mounting system, we invented the locking hi-hat clutch. You know, where you take in the bottom nut that screws on the underneath side of your hi-hat symbol. It's got a little drum key uh, screw that you, you tighten down so that that can't back off. Because I think all of us at some point in time in our career have been in the middle of a gig yeah. where you're pounding away. And, and all of a sudden that bottom nut backs off your hi-hat and the rod goes up and down, but the symbol just sits there looking <laughs> exactly. at it. Exactly. I've seen that, though, on a Yamaha kit. Yeah, that's that's a really cool innovative yeah. technology. Yeah, and that's one of those things that there again has been copied by some of the other companies, but there again we were the first guys to do it. Other little things like uh you look at our symbol stands, we have that threaded symbol seat where rather than just putting a, a loose washer and a piece of tubing on the symbol stand to keep you, you know, from keyholing your symbols, the sleeve and the symbol seat are all incorporated into one cast composite piece of material and it's actually threaded, and it screws down onto your cymbal stand. And um, for part of my training, I always try to get people to guess why we originally did that. And most people think that it's because, you know, when you're tearing down at the end of the gig, you know, and you're pulling your cymbals off, you pull the felt off, you pull that sleeve off, or the sleeve just kind of comes off when you pull your cymbal off, and it just disappears into that yep. that alternate third universe <laughs> where all the wing nuts and yeah. Tuning everything else and, disappears yeah. too. Yeah. The extra sock from the dryer and all that. <laughs> yep. So, um, but the, actually, the reason that that was originally done was when you go into the studio and you put a bunch of high end condenser microphones over your drums. Those loose washer and cymbal sleeves can rattle. Yes. And sometimes it just makes you insane trying to trace down some of those those little noises and rattles. So Yamaha developed that threaded cymbal seat to eliminate that problem. And there again, that came about because we were so active in the studio scene with the recording custom and everything else that it just was kind of a natural thing for us to create that. Wow. That makes me think from 67 to even today, and we can kind of get back into 90s, but what is the like R&D side of, of Yamaha? I've never really thought about that with like, that's got to be an awesome job. I mean, thinking of these cool, innovative ideas, what does that look like? Well, it's sort of a multi-headed sort of monster. We've got, uh, you know, obviously we do a lot of our R&D work in Japan where our world headquarters is. But being an international company, we have subsidiaries in Canada and Mexico and in Europe and Great Britain and Japan and all over the world. Um, and, of course, everybody's got ideas. Yeah. We all feed sort of ideas into the company. And, of course, every market has certain demands sure. that, that people are asking for. So we feed all that information to Japan and look at it and say, okay, well, which ideas are going to have the broadest appeal first, and let's work on those. And so we'll create ideas around that, and we'll build prototypes and then send stuff on the road with artists 
and we'll let guys tour around the world and say we're working on a new bass drum pedal or something. We'll have guys tour all around the world with that pedal until they blow it up, and then we see what they blew up and figure out why it blew up and then fix that and and go on about the process. So sometimes it takes us a little longer to, to develop stuff, but we do that so that once we launch it, we're not having to backtrack and then solve problems that we let kind of slide through. Yeah, no, that makes perfect you know, sense. I've, I'm, I'm fortunate in the, the 16 years that I've been here, you know, I've been able to be involved in you know the development of several new drum lines from Club Custom, Absolute Hybrid Maple, Live Custom, all those where we're testing prototypes. I've had a chance to play you know, like prototypes early on and voice a little input along with everyone else as far as what I liked and didn't maybe particularly care about a certain prototype as we go throughout the the development process. And um, one of the things we did to help with that development was several years ago, we hired um, a designer, an American, a guy named Daryl Anderson. And uh, Daryl was from back east, like Connecticut, and he had a little small boutique drum company where he's building his own stuff. And we wanted to start doing a lot of R&D work and stuff here in the U.S. So we built a facility in North Hollywood, and Daryl was hired as a drum designer, really innovative. He was used to working with drums, very good with finishes. He's an amazing paint guy. He's a phenomenal paint guy. He's really creative. So Daryl was hired, and of course he got to go to Japan, was trained by our best paint guys and everything else. So Daryl, now that facility is in Calabasas, he's got a full shop there. Hmm. So Japan can feed him raw shells, and he can do bearing edges and paint them and mount hardware and, and create things. Artists can come by and, and play prototypes and say, wow, I like this. You know what? might be better if you did this, and we get feedback from our artists. So, you know, what we'll do is, like, um, we developed Absolute Hybrid Maple after, you know, we moved from Sockeye to, to our Chinese factory. What we did was we used the Maple Custom Absolute as sort of our benchmark for the new Absolute, and we wanted to make something that was going to be a little better than that. We didn't want to just recreate what we'd already been doing. We wanted to take this opportunity that we have this new factory. Let's see what new things that we can create. So we started experimenting with that hybrid drum shell where we take a very hard, dense wood and put it in the center of the shell. And what that does is it vibrates at a faster rate than the rest of the tone woods in the shell, sort of activates them and pulls more of the characteristics out. So we would set up Maple Absolute 22-12-16 in our vintage finish up in the, in the showroom in Calabasas. And then Daryl would set up two or three different prototype kits, the same finish, same configuration, but no markings on them. And we'd have artists come in and play them, and we would record and videotape all of the, all the sessions and get the artist's feedback as far as, well, yeah, I like the bass drum on kit number one. The four tom on number three is killing, but the 12-inch tom on that fourth kit is, is, is the one. The artist never knew what they were playing, they just knew what they were hearing. And so then we would take all those notes, and then we'd go back and build other prototype kits. And over a period of about three to three and a half years and 150 artists coming in and playing prototypes, that's how we developed the Absolute Hybrid Maple Kit. And a couple of the features from that, which is the latest version of the S yes mounting system and that hook lug, 
were originally created for the PHX, the flagship. And then those morphed on down. So there's, you know, that vertical integration kind of kicked in again. Yeah. So. Wow. For a uh, for a company to be so massive and large and have so many different verticals within the company, to be that in tune, pun intended, with everyone who is actually playing the drums and out on the road, I mean, that's just pretty impressive that you guys can actually uh, can, can manage that and handle it and not just be this behemoth company and kind of have a small company feel with how much you listen to people. You know, when you look at the corporate umbrella, there's, you know, Yamaha Corporation of America, which is us, the musical instrument guys. And then there's Yamaha Motors, who's over in Cyprus, just about 10 minutes from us. They're run as entirely different companies. Sure. Even though it's under the same corporate umbrella, um, each facet of the company that does its different thing, because we have in Japan, we make high-end cabinetry for your home. We have resorts. <laughs> you know, there's a sporting goods division. You know, used to where we did you know, golf clubs and tennis rackets and yeah. all that stuff. We do Yamaha boats and yeah. our outboard motors pretty much rule the pro bass circuit right now. So yeah. every aspect of each of these different arms of the company are run as separate companies. So we are basically a collection of small companies under, it's almost like a big shopping mall, yeah. you know, yeah, really. where we have all these different companies under, under one roof. But at the same time, we still communicate with each other because for many years, our Yamaha drum hardware was made in the Yamaha motorcycle factory in Indonesia. And how that came about is they had this motorcycle factory, and it wasn't profitable because there wasn't enough demand for those small motorcycles they were making. So they invited us to make our drum hardware in there. So you would see, you know, on the conveyor coming down, you'd see handlebars, and you'd see mufflers heading for the chroming tanks, and then you'd see some cymbal stands and that kind of stuff. <laughs> when you look at a Yamaha cymbal stand and you see some of those parts of the stand that are kind of a satiny sort of finish, instead of being chrome plated, that's a pure zinc casting, and those castings were done the same way that they did castings for motorcycle parts. So because of these other different companies we're involved in, we borrow technology from each other. The tone wood for the PHX, which was our flagship kit, the Kapoor, was a wood that was being used by the high-end cabinet guys. And then they say something that got to the musical instrument guys that this interesting wood that they're working with, and next thing you know, they grab a piece of it, and they start banging on it, and it makes these interesting tonal characteristics and they start making drums out of it and so we have there's a lot of this cross-pollination between the different companies where we're sharing technologies and manufacturing techniques and materials it's a big benefit to have all of those resources and, and put everyone's minds together to make everything uh the best that it can be it really it really is and we come up you know so we come out with some pretty cool ideas because of that I know when we did our um, 50th anniversary of Yamaha drums, we did a, you know, there was a big interesting display that we did in Japan. Basically what we did is we had the motorcycle guys, from their perspective, not knowing anything about drum sets and the rules, had them create a drum set, and then the musical instrument guys created a motorcycle from their perspective. Oh, really? How'd that turn out? It was really amazing. You looked at what the motorcycle guys came up with 
for a drum set, and there was this big sort of circular cage thing with drums kind of sort of spread around, and it was it made you think sort of way outside the box because it was a different approach, but it was very playable, and you could create interesting music musical ideas on it. And then the motorcycle created by the musical guys had some different ergonomic features to it where you wouldn't maybe necessarily think of it from a motorcyclist perspective, but at the same time, it was very functional. So hmm. it was it was pretty cool. It drew a lot of a lot of attention at at the NAM show that year. That's and, cool. Uh, it was it was pretty cool. So yeah, so it's it's a really really amazing company that there's a lot going on. Yeah. So, well, all right. So let's back up. Um, I think just to kind of cover okay. the whole thing. So I think we were in the. Um, Entering, if not in the 90s, I think we were in the 90s, we have Wayne's World going on. Right, right. What happened then? Well, we got, in 1996, we launched the Stage Custom. Yeah. And Stage Custom was the first, like, lacquered, finished, like, entry-level kit. Yeah, I had one. And 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 it took over the market, because they were amazing drums. We made them in Indonesia, in a Yamaha factory. They were staggered diagonal seam, air seal system, so the shells were made exactly the same as our high-end drums were made we put a high-tension lug on it so it's sort of it was like a poor man's recording custom and they were just amazing you know and then 98 the absolute series came out where we had the maple and the birch and then later on added the beach so you had the same finishes the same lugs same hardware with three different kinds of wood so now you could have a maple bass drum and birch toms, which is something that Steve Gadd was famous for. You could do maybe a beach bass drum and birch toms or, you know, and maple floor toms. You could mix and match however you wanted, and you'd have it in a matching drum kit, but you could do, you know, whatever you wanted, you know. Yeah. Late 90s, I think it was around 1999, we had the Hip Gig series, which was like the first, like, modern, like, portable drum set. You know, there was the Rick Murata and then um, the Al Fosser series hip gig kits where all the drums, you know, kind of stacked inside of each other with some, there were some latches on them and then all the hardware dropped down into the canister thrown and you basically had two bags to take all your stuff into the gig. And then then in the early 2000s, we came out with Oak Custom and Oak was a very, very difficult wood to work with. It's a very coarse grain, so in order to be able to get a, a nice shiny lacquer finish on that, it took a lot of experimenting. And what we ended up doing is, in one of our other divisions, our automotive parts division, we make all the woodwork for the inside of a Lexus automobile. So the manufacturing techniques we used to seal the wood to get a shiny finish on that exotic wood was something we applied to the oak so that we could get a shiny finish, gloss finish on the oak without having to put too much lacquer on it. So the next thing big kind of that came along the pike after um, Oak Custom was the Nouveau lug. And there had been other companies that had made removable drum lugs before, but there are always some rattling issues with them. Some of them had springs in them and other things. Yeah. So the Nouveau was a little bit different, whereas the post you know, was anchored to the shell and then the lug just kind of hooked on it, and it had a couple of couple of benefits. Um, once you worked with the lug a little bit, you know, it sped up head changes. But the main reason behind doing that lug was that the post that screwed onto the shell put such little contact 
on the shell that you weren't really restricting the residents of the shell very much. Interesting. So, and, and at the same time that the Nouveau Lug was launched, that's when the Absolute Series drum started coming with the aluminum die-cast hoops. And those hoops were pretty innovative in that you got all the benefits of a, of a die-cast hoop where it was very rigid and stiff. So you got that accurate tuning of a die-cast hoop, but it was made of aluminum. So it was, you know, lighter than a, than a 1.6 millimeter steel triple flange hoop. So you sure. weren't adding that mass to the drum. So you got like the, the open tonal warmth of a triple flanged hoop with the accurate tuning of a die cast hoop. So it was like a best of both worlds. Yeah. And they originally came out with the absolute, but when we were developing the PHX series, that was, it was kind of a no brainer to use that lug. Yeah, you know, they, they put in so much technology in the actual shell and all of the the doing things the right way with building the shell, it, uh, it makes perfect sense to not have a bunch of metal basically interrupting, letting the shell breathe and actually be itself. So that's that, that's smart. Yeah, it was, you know, and it, it had a, a couple of quirks to it, you know, being that they mounted on a round post. Sometimes if you, if you were in a little bit too much of a hurry, you'd put it together and the tension rods wouldn't run perfectly vertical Mm -hmm. so when we were developing the phx series the phx came out we developed the hook lug and the hook lug is the lug that's available on the absolute hybrid maple what was did it was basically a new version of of that nouveau lug whereas the post that attached to the shell was square so now when you hook that lug onto it it wasn't going to run you know crooked yeah it would always be perfectly vertical gotcha and the PHX development was kind of an interesting story because, um, you know, we go all the way back to when we talked about recording custom and recording custom pretty much owned the industry yeah. there for, for, for a certain period of time. As, as time went on, I would say probably we got lax and we got outmarketed by some other companies. So we needed to kind of regain that sort of by the way, yeah, we make amazing drums. Yeah, really. And we wanted to kind of kind of like throw the gauntlet down, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. So when we developed PHX, the whole goal was to make the best drum kit that we could make. And price didn't have anything to do with it. Typically, when you're developing a new series of drums, there's a target price point, whether it's, okay, we want to build a kit that's a, that sells for a grand, or we want to build a kit that's going to sell under a thousand. You know, you have your different price points. If you go into any music store, you'll see there's different price points sure. for drum sets. Yeah. Oh, with PHX, it was kind of the the Ferrari approach. <laughs> We're going to build the best drum kit we can build, and at the end of the day, whatever it ends up having to cost, that's what it costs to ride this ride. Yeah. So, so the price was never, never even came into the discussion. It was all about let's just make the best kit that we can make, and that's where the hybrid shell thing really took off. We used a center ply of this South American wood called Jatoba. And then the Kapoor was a tone wood that there again was wood that was being used by our cabinet makers to make these really high-end home cabinets that had these really interesting tonal characteristics, kind of a mahogany kind of warm, dark, smoky kind of tonal characteristic to it. Hmm. And then we infused some North American maple so that what happens is that center ply vibrates at a higher rate, pulls out more of the tonal characteristics of the Kapoor and of the maple, 
and made these drums with this incredibly wide tonal spectrum that that were very musical sounding and you know i was talking about before with the absolute hybrid maple and stuff we made several different prototypes and we would test them and we'd have artists play them and then those prototypes would get crushed and we'd do new ones and stuff so when we did the final prototype testing um to of the you know the phx to see if this was the final recipe what we did is we rendered in our g studios in north hollywood hired nathaniel kunkel as an engineer and we picked like i think we ended up using nine artists at this final prototype testing and what we did is we cartridged in their favorite yamaha kit so tommy aldridge brought in his carbon fiber kit you know, Russ Miller brought in a kit that he'd done a bazillion records with. Paul Lyme brought in his best kit. All these different guys brought in their favorite Yamaha kit. And what we did is we recorded their drums in the studio. Um, some of the guys brought in like a record, so the tracks off a record that that kid had been on and then re-recorded the drum track. Some of the guys just recorded their raw drums. And then we replaced them with the same size PHX and recorded their drums and then the guys all blind tested them in the control room and every single guy picked the phx new out of the box over the best yamaha kit in their entire fleet (laughs) and it's like okay we're on to something yeah you can't you know can't beat that so that's when uh so that's when phx was launched man and um and i'm actually the guy that came up with the name for the series really so when we yeah that's that. That's my that's my fifteen minute uh, claim to fame, because you know when we're trying to name like a new series or a pedal or something, we have to go through all these you know copyrights and make sure that we're not using a word that's been copywritten and things yeah. like that. So we kind of bounce some ideas around for names and stuff like that. But the whole concept of what when you go back to our history with the Phoenix Bird and what the Phoenix bird means is when the Phoenix bird is comes up out of fire and it's sort of the rebirth, so to speak, you know, it's kind of what the Phoenix bird is sort of a symbol of, well, this kit was going to sort of be our reestablishment of like the ultimate drum kit. And so it just kind of came to me like, why don't we just call it the Phoenix series? And then of course we couldn't call it Phoenix because we're getting into copyright territory, but we could use the PHX without getting into any trouble. So thus, the PHX was launched. Man, that's awesome. I'm looking up. I'm looking at them right now. I've never seen them before. They are beautiful. And uh, oh, they're gosh, they're amazing. And yeah, they 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 don't appear to be cheap. Um, They're looking like used ones are about five thousand in that range. Yeah, like a twenty-two by eighteen-inch bass drum MSRP is about fifty-five hundred (laughs) bucks for the bass drum. For the bass drum. Oh wow. Well, you know, not that that's like. I mean, you get what you pay for. Yeah. That's more than my but, car. You know, and wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and PHX, they're, they're still made in Japan because uh, those were never made at Sakai. Those have always been made at our world headquarters in Hamamatsu. We have a small, small shop there called Yamaha Music Craft. And there's three craftsmen there that are they're like the best of the best. And so there's three guys that work in this shop that make all the Phoenix for worldwide distribution. So that's like that's one reason it's a four to six month special order. Yeah, small batch um, kind of thing yeah. here, man. I hope someday to be able to uh, yeah. try them out. And th- so, what year was that launched? 
And then what does that take us up to to kind of to kind of that br- was, bring that, it on home? That was two thousand eight. Okay, that was two thousand eight. Okay, so that's we're we're in we're in the, then, the modern era. Yeah, we're in the modern era now. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, you could, you know, if you if you you wanted to get back into you know the nuts and bolts and all this stuff, you could talk about Yamaha drums all day long. You know, <laughs> sure. but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, so, you know, then you go from, from 2008 and 2011, we took what was the main tone wood out of the PHX, which was the Malaysian Kapoor. And that's where the club custom came from. And that was a drum set that was marketed towards the vintage drum market. So it had that, you know, sort of vintage drum kind of vibe to it. It was a thin mahogany shell with rounded over bearing edges and that's when they developed that uh, swirl painting technique where um, I'm not going to get into it too deeply and give away any trade secrets. But that's where, if you remember the swirl finishes on the club custom kits from, from back then, it was very innovative. They were all done by hand, so each of them is different. Um, and actually, during the, dev- the whole development process, that's the drums I fell in love with. So I did, was playing on an Oak custom before that. And I sold my Oak custom kit and bought myself a club custom. And that's my personal home kit wow. to this day. That's my problem. My forever kit. Yeah. Cause they're cool. just so amazing. Yeah. And they're real. I mean, they're an attainable price too, you know, which is, which is obviously yeah. a factor. Yeah. And then it wasn't long after that, that we discontinued our association with Sakai rhythm and moved to the XY factory in Shaoshan in China, which is, uh, was originally built from the ground up as the Yamaha factory. It was originally a piano factory where they made pianos and then parts for high-end pianos. And then band and orchestral instruments were added. We had you know, woodwinds and brass instruments, concert percussion. And then the first drum set that we launched out of that factory was the live custom. We did live custom first because Oak custom was interesting in that it, it sort of, it occupied a really interesting price point where it was a completely 100% handcrafted high-end drum set, but because the materials involved were less expensive, it hit a magical price point. And once everyone kind of got the idea of how great these drums sounded, then Oak was a huge success. So when we went to, basically when we left Sakai, we discontinued our entire catalog and then started over from scratch. One series, yeah, Recording Custom, the Absolute Series, all of our scenarios, everything went away. (laughs) And then we started over again at the new factory. Jeez, I didn't know that. So yeah, so this is... yeah, this was the challenge. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and there were, you know, we, you know, we had we had competitors trying to tell dealers that yeah, Yamaha's going to quit making drums, and dealers would tell me that, and I said, well, no, nah, it's what they meant to say is they wish we'd quit making drums, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, so man, no, I think like like the phoenix, you shall rise again, and uh, and you are rising. I mean, it's yeah. Yamaha's never, yeah, there was never a lapse in uh, what the general consumer would think. So that's probably all that matters. Yeah, it. It, well, it, it worked out because it, the, the, the transition, it was well-planned. We didn't go a year without making drums. Sakai was actually making their own branded drums. At the same time, they were still making Yamaha drums towards the end of that relationship. Hmm. And then we moved out. We let Sakai, we gifted Sakai all the machinery in the factory. Wow. 
So, nice. so it was a, so yeah, it was an amicable split. There wasn't any animosity. It was just that we wanted to, we wanted to have complete control over everything from beginning to end and making our drums in an OEM factory. We relinquished a certain amount of control. We would develop a new series, get it all ready to go. And then we'd have to teach Sockeye how to make that series and keep an eye on things. Um, with everything being done in our own factory, you know, we cut out that middle, that middle thing. Yeah, which I, I see Yamaha as being a perfectionist kind of company, and that's when you give up that kind of power, that's got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. So then when we launched the new factory, uh, first the first drum set was the, the live custom. And like I said, you know, that oak sort of had that interest in that, that perfect sort of price point. So that gave us a little bit of a jumpstart. We could launch a drum kit that was going to sell well from the very beginning and kind of get the ball rolling again. And then we knew, okay, well, we have to have an absolute series because that's our benchmark pro-level kit. Sure. So at the same time, Live Custom was 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 getting up and going. We would, had started development of the Absolute Hybrid Maple, but there again, rather than just creating another Absolute kit, you know, making a maple or birch kit and, and pushing it out there, we wanted to create something new. So we took that hybrid shell concept that we used with the PHX put that hard center ply of the Wenge, sandwiched it in between the maple for absolute hybrid maple. We launched that kit, and then it ran a couple years. And uh, at the same time, we knew that recording custom, we did get some blowback from moving to China. Yeah, There were all those, oh, they're made in China now. I'm never going to buy a Yamaha kit. And there was a lot of guys, you know, sitting there on a, $3,000 computer made in China complained about us making <laughs> drums in China. So yeah, it was, it was a little, it was a little silly, but sure. It was cheaper to move there, obviously for manufacturing and probably just was a financial choice to, to move there. Well, you know, not really because when you look at the money we put into building that factory and putting in the additions to make drums, all new machinery, all new molds, Everything we put millions of dollars into that factory, yeah, so that we could make drums there. So we didn't. It had nothing to do with making drums cheaper. It had more to do with moving into an established Yamaha factory with Yamaha standards, so that we could make our drums as good or better than we were making them before, hmm. and try to make this a seamless transition. Cool. So it really wasn't about making our drums cheaper. It was about really that total control of beginning to end doing everything the Yamaha way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, so, I'm glad you addressed that situation because I'm sure people listening were thinking that, but you look at, you know, you look at that factory, you know, it's, it's not your typical Chinese factory. We've all heard about manufacturing in China and the scorched earth. And yeah, yeah. there's a lot of things that we, you know, that we've all heard about, but the thing is, is that that factory is we could run that factory in the state of California and pass the environmental regulations. So it's it's a very earth-friendly. Uh, matter of fact, the Chinese government has approached Yamaha to help them make other factories more earth-friendly. That's great. Um, cool. And so, you know, they're again cool. using some of that Yamaha, you know, technology to – Try and make everything better, yeah. but you know they hired a five. They hired a chef from a five-star hotel to cook in the cafeteria. 
so the workers they have access to to good 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 food. You know, they have covered parking, which you know we don't think about it that much over here. But covered parking over there for your motorcycle is a big deal. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear Yamaha cares yeah. because that's it. It comes through in every detail of of what they do, and um, they're beloved in the uh, drum community. So I think that that still continues to this day. But that, oh, yeah. that basically, you know? that brings us up to where we're at today, obviously, right? So, I mean, I think... Yeah, pretty much. Wow. I mean, that is the full yep. history of, of Yamaha drums, which, again, starting this out, going from the beginning of the company in 1887 to drums starting in 1967, there's just such a... That, that feeling has just been, you know, cultivated over all those years. So, that's something to be proud of. Definitely. Yeah, and there's a, you know, and there's a culture here. You know, you ask around, and the level of customer service that we provide is exceptionally high. You know, you talk to our dealers, you talk to consumers, and you know, the 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 customer satisfaction level is very very high for Yamaha, and it's something that we work really hard on, and something that we stress from the top all the way down. Our fiscal year runs through the end of March, so in April we have what we call our corporate kickoff where we basically we rent the, the Cerrito Center for the Performing Arts. We shut the office down, and everybody, including the warehouse people, all go to this big meeting over there, and everybody in each of the divisions talks about, okay, here's what we did last year. Um, here's where we ended up. Here's what we got planned for next year to take us to the next level. So even, even the people packing boxes out in the warehouse know what's going on with the company, know where we stand, know where we're headed hmm. and then after the meeting everybody shuffles outside they have a little thing where we have some food and drinks and stuff where we all stand around we go back inside the cerrito center and there's a private concert for the employees and they and they bring a guest and you look and there'll be an entire orchestra on stage Every single musical instrument in a place is a Yamaha. Of course. <laughs> the sound system for Cerrito Center is a combination uh, Yamaha board, Nexo speakers, and Nexo is a French speaker company that Yamaha acquired some years ago. So, I mean, every instrument on stage, the sound system, everything is Yamaha. And there's not another company in the world that can do that. No, no. You know, not at that level. No, absolutely you know? not. Uh, so... Um, yeah, it's, you know, it really kind of brings it all into perspective. And then, you know, it's all, you know, you have Yamaha artists that are performing and we've had Tower of Power, Earth, Wind and Fire, Natalie Cole and, you know, the Reverend Al Green one year and, you know, Sarah McLaughlin and Sarah Bareilles and all these, you know, different Yamaha artists come and perform for us, you know, and, yeah. Jeez, and it's like awesome. their, their gift back to us and, and everybody in the company that way feels like they've okay. Now I see what I'm contributing. Yeah, to. what this cog is going to, or what this, yeah, what this widget uh, is going to be yeah, yeah. put into. Yeah, I'm packing boxes in the warehouse, but then you know that box ended up at this guy's house. He took it out of the box, and now he's making this incredible music with yeah. what came out of the box. So yeah, that's cool. There's that tie-in for everyone. So like everybody sees their contribution, and everybody has that sense of importance to the success of the company. And I think yeah. that's something that's, you know, I'm 61 years old. I've had a lot of jobs. This is one of those few places where it just feels, you know, you feel appreciated and you get to see 
what your contribution is giving to the company, you know? Yeah, that's so cool. So my final question then would be, can I have a job at Yamaha? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you go to our website and go to the HR section, they do post all the all the jobs available. That's funny. Uh, people don't leave very often. I, I mean, I'm you sure. know, because every year, you know, um, you know, we've got some people that are retiring, but, but, you know, we got people retiring after 35 and 40 years with the company. That's um, great. I came on board kind of later on. So, you know, when I retired at 67, I'll, I'll only have 22 years in with the company, you know, Gosh, but, wow. um, yeah, well, I need to say I'm joking and I love my job at Gwyn Sound yeah. where I work. Yeah. <laughs> um, but and also it's yeah. cool. We have a uh, we have a Yamaha C7 um, piano, which people come oh. here and are blown away by it. And it is just everyone's yeah. favorite piano when they come in. And that is a absolute. I mean, again, that you could buy, you know, a small yeah. house with instead of buying the piano. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, so, you know, and it's I've been to the piano factory where they make them. And that's another one of those things. When you see how they make the pianos and, and what they go through, it's it, when they're like leveling the keys. I mean, they have shims like the thickness of tissue paper that they use to make sure everything is. And when, there's, when they make the body of the piano, they store them in different areas with different atmospheric conditions. So like a piano that's going to go to Europe the body of it has been stored in an area with atmospheric conditions similar to what it's going to be in Europe so that it doesn't go through these drastic changes once it gets to its final destination. I mean, just the things that they do to yeah. achieve, you know, their, their, the level of greatness that yeah, it's, yeah. it's just pretty amazing. Wow. And, uh, wow. Well, like I said, I, I've had a lot of jobs. I worked for a lot of companies and, but just, you know, when you look around at the at the history of what this company has done, you know, the contributions that they've made to all the industries that they're involved in, it's, you know, it's just pretty mind blowing. It is. Cool. Well, Jim, I think we've, uh, I think we've covered the whole thing. Um, our listeners won't know this, but we've had you in two separate conference rooms now doing this, uh, interviews. <laughs> we've, we've moved around. Um, this has been a great experience though, talking to you and, and it all came from going to the Chicago drum show and just meeting yeah. people in the industry, which, um, that was my first time and that was a big deal. And I was just standing there and I had always wanted to do that show. And, um, the year actually the year that we launched club custom because it was targeted kind of towards that vintage market. I was able to convince my boss at the time who was the marketing manager. Let me take these drums to the Chicago show and let people see them. And not only will it, because they're not really in stores yet since we just launched them, we got, you know, basically the most important city for drums in America. Yes. These guys are going to get a chance to see them. Uh, and it also kind of drops that corporate veil. They get to see that I'm, I'm not a corporate guy. No. I'm a drum guy playing drums since I was 10. It's the only thing that I've ever really wanted to be as a drummer. Um, you know, I played for my first gig when I was 14. I'm a veteran. I mean, I served my, when I enlisted in this Navy as a gunner's, uh, as a gunner's mate, I had the opportunity to audition for the music program and, Ended up touring with the United States Navy Band for four years. Man. So my whole life has sort of revolved around drums. Yeah. So to be able to, you know, be here and, and do this and 
and it just to me it was important to reach out to to guys you know and sort of kind of drop that corporate veil that we're drum guys too and now every year i go to the, the chicago show and you know we all know each other and so i have all these friends there and i have guys that i've sent parts to over the year one of the fun things for me is you know, we get returns that's like a drum kit might get damaged in shipping and the bass drum gets, gets hit with a forklift or something. Um, I strip all the usable parts off the drum set before I scrap the shell and you know, we get guys right in. They need, you know, they dropped it or they broke a lug or they did this or they need a part for something. Maybe I've got it in a drawer. So I'll just go downstairs, grab it, throw it in an envelope and mail it to them. Nice. And every year when I go to the Chicago show, there'll be a couple of guys that come up with a dude like three years ago, I needed a thing and you sent it to me and I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's funny how those just, just little bitty things that you do stick in people's minds, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. And I love like doing those shows. We do the Hollywood show every year. And for me, PASIC is one of the most fun events we do because it's, all the kids coming in, they've, you know, a lot of those kids have never been out of their little hometown and to see all these different drums and to be able to see a bunch of their drum heroes and just run around. And we're, we're definitely the most hands-on booth at basic where we've got kids coming in, sitting down, playing our drums. I mean, you know, we'll have a Phoenix kid on display and if a 12 year old kid comes in and wants to play a Phoenix kid, we let him play a Phoenix kid, you know? Yeah. So nice. that's great. But then again, that's all about, cultivating you know the future of the company you know when the yeah. kid goes home and you know he's been running around to all the different booths and guys at uh, booth a b and c were all jerks but the yamaha guy was really cool with him and let him sit down and play the drum kit and talk to him and stuff so when his mom and dad take him to the music store now, the first thing he's going to look at is the Yamaha kit. Hey, he's going to so, say, Dad, I want this uh, Phoenix kit. Um, <laughs> Dad yeah. says, uh, no, <laughs> let's look at something else. Yeah. No, that's great. And I, yeah. got, I got that feeling, too, because you said, hey, come on in and play these drums and play the, the EAD-10 and put some yeah. headphones on and experiment with it. So Yamaha, you can find online everywhere um, in every category humanly possible. So, um, Jim, I want to thank you again. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to... Uh talk about drums something i love to do so i can't believe they actually paid me to do that but you know <laughs> yeah, you're a lucky man <laughs> perfect yes i am yes i am and unfortunately for everybody out there that would love to have my job um, according to my doctor i'm in health so <laughs> you're gonna have to wait a while <laughs> yeah yeah i'll i'll keep checking the uh the hr part of the website for that job opening but no you're you're there you go. you're a good guy and uh, i appreciate you taking the time and um and talking with me and, and teaching everyone about yamaha I had a great time, and uh, if you need anything, you know, give me a call, and uh, hopefully I'll see you at the show in Chicago again next year. You sure will. Awesome. All right, thank you, Jim. I'll talk to you later. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History, and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. This is a Gwyn Sound Podcast.